Sí. Okay. This will be fun for our for our listener on the audio recording. <laughs> well, welcome y'all to um, our continuing articles class. I think I'm going to steal the lovely Madison's uh, music stand here, which I like having. We're in article number 22, I believe. Let's flip on over. Apologies to those of y'all that tried to uh, join us last week after mass. It didn't quite work out. Um, no, not our article 22. We're, we're beyond that. We're in article number 26. We're quite a bit beyond 22. Of the unworthiness of the ministers, which hinders not the effect of the sacraments. Let's go ahead and read that. This is page 608 in the, uh, in the prayer book. Trying to pull up some notes here too. Although in the visible church, the evil ever be mingled with the good, and sometimes the evil have chief authority in the ministration of the word and sacraments, yet for as much as they do not the same in their own name, but in Christ's, and do minister by his commission and authority, we may use their ministry both in hearing the word of God and in receiving the sacraments. Neither is the effect of Christ's ordinance taken away by their wickedness, nor the grace of God's gifts diminished from such as by faith and rightly do receive the sacraments ministered unto them, which be effectual because of Christ's institution and promise, although they be ministered by evil men. Nevertheless, it appertaineth to the discipline of the church that inquiry be made of evil ministers and that they be accused by those that have knowledge of their offenses and finally being found guilty by just judgment be deposed. Okay, so what's, what's it basically saying? Um, that the uh, efficacy of the sacraments is not based on your minister. Um, you know, you can have a really bad minister and the sacraments are still doing what the sacraments are supposed to do. Why is that? Well, because the sacraments belong to Jesus, not to the minister. And the sacraments are based on his promises, not on the minister's goodness. So the efficacy of the, of the sacraments does not change based on the minister. Um, now, historically, there was a uh, controversy in the early church called the Donatist controversy, whereby um, there were some folks that had, um, even some of the ministers had, had, uh, had abandoned the faith in the light of persecution. And the Donatists basically said, well, if you were baptized by one of these guys that ended up becoming apostate, you need to get rebaptized because that means your baptism wasn't valid. And um, this ends up getting declared a heresy because um, it, it, you know, it basically required rebaptism and it was putting the efficacy of the sacraments on the minister. Um, that's probably not what was in in their immediate situation at the time of writing the articles, although that is a something that I'm sure they were aware of in the background and they kind of informed the article. What's more likely going on at the time of the article itself is that some of the Anabaptist groups 
we're reviving that idea that if your minister is bad, then whatever's happening isn't, isn't good. You're not really baptized. You're not really taking communion. Um, you might not even really be married if you got married in the church, that sort of thing. It was, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was a pretty, pretty rough thing. And so this is probably um, really related to that, that Anabaptist um, objection to things. And then the truth is, I mean, the Anabaptists were all over the map when it came to things. I mean, there was no kind of monolithic Anabaptist point of view at the time of the Reformation. They were just kind of a group that kind of got lumped in together of... Um, the, uh, sometimes they were called the radical reformers. And some of these guys were very much bringing back old heresies. Some of them not so much so. Uh, most of them eventually settled down. Uh, the, the descendants of the, of the Anabaptists are going to be groups like the Quakers and the Mennonites. Not the Baptists, actually. The Baptists come from us. <laughs> they, they come from the congregational fact, faction among us. So that, that's kind of the big, the big thing um, hi historically. Um, and and as always, we're really looking at some of the way Augustine does theology um, when we're when we're unpacking the, our theology. Because I mean, the truth is, Western theology is Augustinian to one extent or the other. And so, um, here's a quote from uh, Harold Brown on this. He says, "Augustine, Augustine lays it down as a rule that ministers do not confer." remission of sins or grace of the sacraments, but that the Holy Spirit confers them through their ministry. So I'm not the one who's conveying the grace of the sacrament, the Holy Spirit's conveying grace. Um, the remission of sins is given by virtue of the sacraments, not by the merit of him who ministers them. So then what do you need the minister for? <laughs> well, um, that's part of the uh, that, that's part of the discipline of the church. That's part of how the Lord uses the sacraments is through a minister uh, 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 working working through the word and the sacrament. But the point is, the Holy Spirit's doing the ministration, not me, not other ministers. Um, and then the truth is, uh, there, there's you know this last paragraph here. Nevertheless, it appertained to the discipline of the church that inquiry be made of evil ministers and that they be accused by those who have knowledge of their offenses and finally being found guilty by just judgment be disposed. Um, there's always been scandals in the church. They're, they're, I mean, Jesus even said scandals are going to come, right? Um, we just read in our, in our epistle this past week, so rather our gospel last week, the parable of the wheat and the tares. And even though Jesus tells us that the wheat and the tares are um, specifically about the church in the world, we do see that the world gets into the church too, including the ministers, right? That's part of the tears there too. Um, so there's always inconsistency to some extent um, in, 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 in the ministers, and that can be at times very scandalous. Um, you know, the Catholic church has been dealing with the uh, abuse scandals for a long time now. Um, and it was going on a long time before that. Uh, I think um, uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict just made a big mea culpa about not handling that well um, to the New York Times or one of those, and it's been making headlines all over the place. So we, 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 all, we all see these kinds of things. And the truth is that does at times drive would-be faithful from the church. Um, so that's why we need to exercise, we do need to exercise discipline. A lot of the mess in the Anglican communion is that we have not 
exercise discipline, both in terms of um, the, the ministers not doing things that in, with regard to proper morality, but also proper theology. So we, we, do, need a, we do need to do that. Um, there's another issue that pops up too, which is um, there, there's, a, there's a Roman Catholic understanding of the sacraments that has to do with proper intention which basically says, if the minister doesn't have the proper intention in ministering the sacrament, whatever that sacrament might be, then it's not a valid sacrament. What they're trying to get at with that is that if, <laughs> if, if you are not in a body, I mean, this is really what they were trying to get at the time. If you're not in a body that believes in transubstantiation, then it's not really the Eucharist. I mean, that's really what they're trying to get at. But what gets applied is, it, it ends up getting applied beyond that. Um, I, I was dealing with a fellow one time who was just really obsessing over this issue of, of sacramental intention. And what ends up happening if you, if you just really obsess over that, you can never know for sure what the intention of your minister is. You can't get up in my head and know that, right? Now, you might be able to know if, you know, if somebody is talking in a way that's clearly um, wrong, <laughs> but, but you ultimately can never know. And, and you end up doing, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a Jewish proverb that says something to the effect of, um, oh, I'm going to totally mess this up. But, it, but basically, it boils down to you end up with a, with a congregation of one. And then that's what happens if you follow the, the logic of, of sacramental intention to its, to its extreme, is you end up not being able to be part of the church because you never know. And everything's always going to be suspect. So that may have also been in there some way. So Brown says this about that. He says, if no sacrament is valid unless the priest intends that it should be so, then we know not whether our children be baptized, our wives married, our communicant, our communicate, our communions received, or our bishops consecrated. Yep. And that's the way it ends up going. You just can't know this. Um, that said, you know, our article was not again, necessarily talking about this error any more than it was of the Donatist error, but we do have, but it does address those things too. Um, let's let's um, pause there, questions, comments. Um, those of y'all on Zoom, I cannot read you from this district, so I'm sorry, but those of y'all here in person, I'll repeat it for the folks on Zoom and on the, on the if you have anything. When I read this, I can see somebody asking all well, Right, right. So for the for the recording and for those on Zoom, the the uh, the question the the observation was, um, you could easily read this article and say, okay, well, if the morality of the minister doesn't matter does the ministry matter even at all <laughs> do you even need a ministry and um and and then um uh, jeff pointed back to this idea uh in here about the minute that um where it says have have chief authority in the ministration of the word and sacraments yet for as much as they do not receive their own by 
the same by their own name, but in Christ's and do minister by his commission and authority. And that, that is where I would say, yeah, that, that's, that's a key aspect of the ministry is it is by Christ's commission, Christ's authority via the church. You don't, you don't ordain yourself. And we've, we've talked about that problem in the past, some of how that sort of thing could go. Um, let's, any, anything else? And then we'll, we'll look at some of the scriptures that relate to this issue. Okay, let's look at the scriptures. Um, you know, we, we have, again, that last week's gospel from, from Matthew 13, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Um, it, it very much talks to this kind of thing, even though the field, you know, as Jesus explains, is the world, not necessarily the church. But this is the kind of thing that does happen in the church as much as in the world. Um, and we can just look at the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. Judas is one of these guys, right? And, um, you know, Judas was a son of perdition from the beginning, but nobody knew it until he betrayed the Lord. Like when the, when the, at the last supper, when um, Jesus says one of you is going to betray me, they're all looking around saying, who's it going to be? Is it going to be me? I mean, nobody was suspecting Judas. And um, when they do replace him, what are they saying? They, they, they very much speak in terms of we are actually filling, filling the shoes vacated by the traitor. So um, had he not um, killed himself, he probably would have been subject to, to discipline, right? And then they would have had to fill his shoes anyway. Okay, so that's, that's article number 26. Um, thoughts on that? Uh, any more of that? Or we can move on to number 27. Yes, Richard. But the inquiries be made. Who will be made to inquire us about this? Do we have to come for the put a comfort of our lady? Does that have to be for a priest place? No less than a priest to then use our lane. Okay, so yeah, the question for the recording is how does that inquiry happen? You know, who, who gets to make those inquiries? Um, so I can speak for our diocese on that. Um, we we have Basically, part of the standing committee are people who, uh, the, the diocesan standing committee are people who will investigate these things if a credible charge comes forward. And that credible charge can come from anybody. Um, it can come from parishioners, other, other priests, and, they, and so they will investigate. And if necessary, they will um, enact a, an ecclesiastical court. We have a whole section in our diocesan canons regarding holding those ecclesiastical courts and um, such disposition. Um, I, I, as far as I know so far, and we do have people that are canon lawyers or are trained in canon law that are always part of that as well. Um, and as far as I, I know, our diocese is still relatively young. I think, I think we're, we're at about, we're at the 10th anniversary of the bishop's consecration. He was our first bishop. So I think we're, we're staring down nine years this summer as a diocese. So we're still pretty young. But my, my understanding is that um, we haven't had to get to that point yet. Basically, when something's come up, um, the person in question has agreed to, to step down without it going to, to court, the, the people in question. And there have been some people that have been, you know, summarily at the bishop's pleasure defrocked because they did some pretty bad things. I mean, <laughs> we, we had some weird like threats of violence from somebody one time. And we had another guy that, uh, you know, was, was caught 
<laughs> shoplifting and was like, well, well, yeah, I wasn't in my collar at the time. Yeah, as if that makes a difference. <laughs> you know, so these guys, these guys are summarily defrocked and, you know, <laughs> no longer part of, so that sort of thing's happened before. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. They defrock themselves at that point. And then we've had some other folks that have chosen to um, uh, leave the ministry rather than, than, than go, to, go to trial. Um, they just said, yeah, I'm, I don't, I don't want to deal with this. So, all right. Article number 27. Uh, that, that's a really good procedural question, by the way. And, and incidentally, if anybody needs a copy, wants to look over our diocesan canons, I can send you all a copy of that. We have, we do have a hard copy at the office at all times, but we have uh, digital copies as well that we can pass along. Okay. Article number 27 of baptism. Okay, so now we're going to start getting into some of the specifics on the sacraments. Number 27, page 608. Baptism is not only a sign of profession and mark of difference, whereby Christian men are discerned from others that be not christened, but it is also a sign of regeneration or new birth, whereby, as by an instrument, they that receive baptism rightly are grafted into the church, the promises of, the, of forgiveness of sins and our adoption to be sons of God by the Holy Ghost are visibly signed and sealed. Faith is confirmed and grace increased by virtue of prayer unto God. The baptism of young children is in any wise to be retained in the church as most agreeable with the institutions of Christ. Okay, so this is basically saying that we do not see baptism as um, a, a mere public profession of faith. There's something more going on there. This is, again, where we're going to very much differ from, um, at least in the Protestant world here in the States, the Baptist majority. Um, we are saying something, something spiritual is, is actually happening, happening here. And the, uh, so it's a sign of regeneration, a sign of new birth. Um, they that receive baptism are rightly grafted into the church. Um, so they're grafted into the visible church. They're made a part of the church. Um, they're grafted into the promises of forgiveness of sins and grafted into the, uh, the promises of our adoption to be sons of God by the Holy Spirit. They're visibly signed and sealed. You know, basically, baptism says this one belongs to God. Um, and at the same time, uh, faith is confirmed. You know, so, so the faith is strengthened. Um, grace is increased. And all of that comes by, by the prayers that come, you know, related to baptism. Um, you know, we talked about this in the homily this past week again as well, you know, you know, so something certainly happens at baptism, something spiritually happens at baptism. You can trust um, by virtue of your baptism that you belong to God, that, you, that you're his. But we all know folks that um, show lives that are no better than pagans despite being baptized. We all know baptized people that walk away. How, how do we reconcile those? Um, well, well, ultimately, this is one of those things where, where God knows the end of the story. And, you know, we have a duty to always call folks back to repentance, always repent ourselves, that sort of thing. Be sure, be, be, be sure in the faith. But we do not have to wring our hands um, wondering if we're really saved. Because if you've been baptized and you're asking that question, that's evidence you are. You, know, you wouldn't ask that question if you weren't. You wouldn't worry about it. Um, so uh, there's a lot of 
controversy in the church about this issue. I mean, we're taking a particular stance. Um, obviously, our Baptist friends take a different stance, and, and some other folks take yet a different stance. Um, but we do see that in the ancient times, the church always associated baptism with regeneration in some way or another. Always has been the case. Um, that said, uh, this is this is. I'm going to read another quote from Harold Brown here. I think this is this is a good one in his in his uh, comment his commentary article. Just on the other side, it has it has been observed that the grace of regeneration is a death unto sin and a new birth unto righteousness. It extends to an entire renewal of the moral nature of man, restoring him to the image of Him who created him. So we all know that's 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 the case. Um, but baptism doesn't mean we're not going to be uh sinning <laughs> it doesn't mean there's going to be some people that are impenitent and there's been a different way that that folks have dealt with this over the years um one of within our own tradition this this really marks up between the growing calvinist faction and the anti-calvinist faction in the in the early days of our you basically you know, 17th century, 18th century, and, before, and earlier. Um, and they, they both kind of deal with this in different ways. Um, the anti-Calvinists who tended to be higher churchmen placed more, more emphasis on the sacrament um, than the Calvinists did. Um, but, but again, everybody always agreed that there is something going on at baptism. Um, I, th I think what can happen a lot of times in, in, within our own tradition is you can end up with different emphases. The high churchmen um, typified by the anti-Calvinists, and, and these guys were not necessarily Arminians, if we talked about that before, but they were basically the folks that were against some of the developments of Calvinism within the Church of England. And, and again, this is largely a 16th, 17th, 18th century phenomenon. Um, we're, we're not really touching on Anglo-Catholicism yet at this point, because there's a lot of stuff that develops there that we just don't have time to get into. But they largely wanted to emphasize the idea that we can trust the Lord, um, what the Lord said in, in his promises in baptism. That was kind of what they emphasized. And I tend to do that too. That, that tends to be my emphasis. Um, blame that on me listening to too many Lutherans. I don't know. But um, but yeah, that's the emphasis I like to have is, is that you can trust the Lord. And the proof of that trust is, is the sign of your baptism. The Calvinists, on the other hand, wanted to emphasize the necessity of raising the children in the way they should go. And I think that's also very, very important. You know, the vows that the sponsors take at baptism are serious vows. We are promising to do something in raising these children, and we 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 can't ignore that, and um, we, we we can't just dismiss those promises. And so, children do need to be discipled; they do need to be catechized. That's part of what it means to be a good parent and a good godparent, and and we need to take that that responsibility seriously. 
And that's more the emphasis that the Calvinists tended to have. Um, and so they might downplay the grace of the sacrament because they're wanting to upplay the discipleship, right? <laughs> and whereas the anti-Calvinists sometimes would downplay the, um, the efficacy of discipleship and upplay the efficacy of the sacrament. And the truth is they're both necessary. They're both, um, they're, they're both part of the package. We can trust God, but we also need to do our duty by our children and by ourselves. That's why we're always called to repent. Um, so what, what can we say? Can, can we hold the truth of both sides, Harold Brown asks, without the error of either? So he says, number one, we know that first of all, that God in Christ has, has made with man a covenant of grace. That means that's God's gift. Baptism is a gift of God. And whether you're on the Calvinist side or the anti-Calvinist side, you can agree baptism is God's gift to us, a gift of grace. And he did so for Christ's sake, not for our merit. He didn't give us that grace because we were better at raising our kids. Matter of fact, as a dad, I know we're all pretty bad at raising our kids. None of us are good at that. We all could be way better at that. God gives the grace anyway. Number two, baptism is the engrafting into the church to which belong the covenant and promises. So being engrafted into the visible body of the church brings something with it, which includes that discipleship, that raising up of children. At the very least, bringing our children to church, they should be hearing the word and, and, and receiving the sacraments. And there is some spiritual grace in that, at the very, very least. And so being engrafted into the church um, that visible body is, is also very important. Um, he asked the question, does all this merely indicate a new outward federal relation of the baptized to God, or does it imply a spiritual change in the soul itself and a moral change of disposition? Well, the answer to that is yes. <laughs> it does guarantee some sort of spiritual change. But again, this is, this, is, this is a distinction Brown is making, which I think we lose a lot today. He says, we must not conf confound a spiritual change in the condition of the soul with a moral change of the disposition and tempers. The outside doesn't always match the inside. Now, it should eventually, but sometimes that doesn't show up right away, right? So the internal grace of baptism consists, he says, in the um, rather in the assured presence of the renovator than the actual renovation. God's there. He's doing something. Are we going to let him do it? You know, that's kind of that's what, what Brown wants to say. Now, what I would, what I would say is that, again, even with our apostate children, <laughs> those that run away <laughs> and, and um, we don't know the end of the story, you know, God's, God's going to deal with that. And we can trust him. We continue to pray for him. Um, St. Monica, I like to say this when she famously prayed 30 years for her son before he came to faith and he ends up becoming St. Augustine, you know, and, and all of us rely on Augustine. Um, so but we do have the opportunity to reject the grace that God gives. You know, that's something that, that we do emphasize 
in, um, in our articles, which is why, again, we're always calling folks to, to repentance. Um, let's pause there. Uh, there's, there's a lot more that can be said. This is a very dense article, but um, I don't know, any, any, any discussion at this point? Richard. Is it fair to say that once we're baptized, we are justified? I'm not sure I would use that language. Um, and, and the reason why is because um, if justification is by faith, then faith is that prerequisite to justification. Baptism should strengthen that faith. So it should be the case, but we generally don't connect the two. We don't, we don't make regeneration in this sense, the sense that we talk about in the baptism and justification be synonymous. Now they're all part of the same big package of salvation, right? But um, we would, we would not, we would not, we would not usually connect justification specifically with baptism. We would connect justification with, with the atonement um, obtained by faith. Now, baptism is that sign of our regeneration, which is how we end up getting that faith. So it, 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 it connects, but it's, it's kind of through a chain. Does that make sense? Yeah. The next okay. Right. Right. So um, sanctification, baptism would be the first step on that road of sanctification, but sanctification is, all, is an ongoing road um, the way we would define it, you know, in that chain of, yeah, justification, sanctification, glorification. And th this brings up, this brings up a question of the order, order of salvation, Latin ordo salutis. Um, differing schools of thought are going to do that in different ways. And it's important to note that the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation, is really more of a logical order than a temporal order. Um, and which is why there's so much disagreement about that. Now, they almost all have the same elements, but the way they arrange them logically is going to be different in different places. Almost everybody does put glorification at the very end <laughs> and sanctifications along the road <laughs> but um where justification regeneration and faith are in that is where the where the disagreements are um and i would it seems to me that our formularies when it comes to the ordo salutis don't get as specific as say um, the Westminster Confession among the Presbyterians or some of the stuff that I know of, at least as far as I know, in the Augsburg Confession in the Lutheran world. Um, we recognize that some of that logic is fuzzy scripturally. And so what, 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 and what that ends up meaning is that 
the way that logical order goes is often debated in our church in a way that it might not be in some of the other churches. Jeff. Yeah. Yeah, I just ran across that very recently, the um, less of a chain model for, for the recording and more of a spoke with union with Christ in the beginning. And I'd like to explore that more. Um, I think in most of West, the Western church, we've ignored the doctrine of union, or, or rather we haven't, it's not that it's been ignored, but it hasn't been emphasized and we haven't really unpacked it. Um, I was, uh, during the summer, I guess it was it the summer, and whenever I was last in Tucson, which I saw, so I guess that's, yeah, that was, that was the end of summer break. Um, I, I was reading uh, Dr. Jordan Cooper's new book on that, on, and he points out, at least in his tradition, now he's a confessional Lutheran, three different aspects of union. And that's the other thing that he says, and I think I'd agree with him on that. We don't always, we, we sometimes use that word union sloppily. So, um, but yeah, I'd like to explore how, how, that model might work a little bit better in some respects of this. If, at the, if, if nothing else, the union being the center and then, you know, faith, regeneration, justification, kind of all flowing out of that. Um, yeah. It seems like a lot of some presuppositions in the format, like, like justification can be lost or something like that, or people can fall away. Um, yeah. Okay, that's the reason why all these kids and stuff are baptized and fall away. It's when they fall away, they didn't, uh, they're not going to say publicly. Right. Yeah, and and we certainly do. Uh, I would basically, if if an Anglican who believes the formularies is spouting is espousing once saved always saved, they are having to rescue the text from itself. Our, our formularies just don't support that because, I mean, our, our formularies just really do recognize that possibility and, and the reality of apostasy of falling away and, and are always warning about it, right? Um, now, I know some Anglicans uh, among the more Calvinist and of things that do, <laughs> but, but, they, but they do. They have to rescue the text from itself. They have to, they have to, they have to basically make the articles and the, and the, and the book of Common Prayer say something it doesn't say. Or they have to say, well, in light of this other thing, which is outside of our formularies, we can interpret it in this way. Okay, that, that's fine. But, but you know, I'd, I'd rather stick within our own formularies rather than try to marry, marry us to either Westminster or Trent. <laughs> you know? let's, uh, let's, let's, let's be who we are. I don't, I don't, I don't have to answer to, to, to Westminster and Trent, right? <laughs> I don't. I don't have to answer to to the uh, to to other other Calvinists. You know, you you can be a you can be a um, a formularies Calvinist without having to, uh, you know, be a Westminster guy. Yeah, that's that's. Yeah, I, th I think that's that's. But yeah, union with Christ. We I think we do need to 
explore how this relates to our baptism a lot more. Um, Cooper would put that in the in the formal union with Christ, kind of similar to how a marriage is that formal union of a spouse, right? Um, and and I also I also want to want to look at this last thing about the baptism of young children. Any wise to be retained in the church is most agreeable with the institution of Christ. Um, again, we're we're kind of making an assertion without really showing our work that um, these days we kind of have to fight that battle a lot more, at least here in the States, because again, you know, Protestants, evangelicals in America are generally Baptistic. And that is just an area where, where the Baptist tradition just completely disagrees with us and always has. Um, that was for the most part uncontroversial in most of her church history. You had a couple of dissenters, but their dissenting of it was not the way the Baptists dissent from it. I mean, it was a different, it was a complete different philosophical dissent. And it was a super, super minority voice that um, nobody really took seriously. Um, but the other, the, and the, the other thing about that is we, one of, one of the things that we see when it comes to children is that we just, we just basically recognize that the children of Christians are not pagans. There's something different there. Now, are they mature Christians? Well, no, they're children, right? Um, we have a responsibility to raise them in the faith and to 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 for them to mature, but they're not pagans. And a child being raised in the faith and getting to know the Lord better is a vastly different thing from um, a non-believer converting. It's just a completely different thing. Um, you know. And and we and we do recognize this in the way we catechize, right? When it comes to adult converts, we catechize before we baptize. With children, we baptize and then we catechize. But we do catechize before we confirm them, right? And generally, the adult convert will be catechized and then baptized, and then as soon as the bishop can get there, is going to be confirmed immediately. You know, so that's that's the way that goes. Um, oh my goodness, there is so much. There is so much more that could be said about baptism um and i've highlighted so much in my uh, in, the, in the in the brown text um oh, one one thing i do want looking at the scriptures with this is that we we certainly see a connection being drawn between the old covenant circumcision and the new covenant um baptism pretty pretty explicitly in um in acts and some of the epistles um in particular we're thinking we're looking at uh colossians chapter two that's a huge one for making that very explicit um so that's that's uh that's 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 pretty important um probably there was some sort of convert baptism among the the first century jews anyway like like non-christians pre-christians -pre they were they were baptizing converts at that and that continues to this day um, let's see. Uh, we have some other Old Testament events that could kind of, kind of, kind of point to this and we, that we point at in the, in the New Testament, um, the, the exodus from the Red Sea being baptized in the cloud through Moses. That's one of the things that we see is New Testament, uh, imagery, um, which again is, is, is attached to baptism. Um, yeah, uh, I, th I think I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna end 
end there. Um, basically, there's there's a lot of promises associated with baptism uh, scripturally, and we and we point them out in our liturgy. So um, best best thing to do would be look look through that baptismal liturgy, and it it talks about those promises very explicitly. All right, any any final questions, comments here? All right, well, thank you all, and thank you guys on Zoom and on the recording, and I'm going to go ahead and end that recording. God bless. Thank mm -hmm. you.